I think particularly for, for policymakers, for um, politicians and officials, you know, carrying out proper equality impact assessments, speaking to the organisations that represent those communities, speaking to the women from those communities, will highlight very quickly ways in which policies might not work for, for particular communities and, and enable people to come up with better policies. Um, there's been a real failure by government to do any sort of equality impact assessment of their, their COVID policies. And you see that in some really obvious failings. Hello and welcome to COVID Matters, a podcast by COVIDAID. I'm your host, Cheryl, and I'm the head of content at COVIDAID. On today's episode, I talk to Dr. Mary Ann Stevenson, director of the Women's Budget Group. The Women's Budget Group are an independent organisation that monitors the impact of government policies on women and men. Their vision is to create a caring economy that promotes equality between all genders. In this conversation, we talk about inequalities highlighted among working class women, women of colour and disabled people during the pandemic, what policymakers and organisations can do to better support these communities, and the importance of accessible childcare to ensure better flexibility for working mothers and protect their mental health during times of crisis. What we do at the Women's Budget Group is we analyse the impact of economic policy on women and men and propose policies that would increase equality. And so obviously when COVID first started, we were extremely concerned that it would have a gendered impact. You know, we knew that women had been hit harder by austerity policies over 10 years up to COVID. Um, so, you know, it lost more money from social security benefits, had been hit harder by cuts to public services, had lost jobs in the public sector and so on. So were less able to, to deal with any economic shocks caused by COVID. And we also knew that women were more likely to work in health and social care. So, you know, sectors which were going to be very directly affected by COVID. And it soon became clear, more likely to work in those sectors that were completely shut during the various lockdowns. So, you know, high street retail, hospitality, um, travel and tourism, those sorts of things. So we, we responded quite quickly. We pulled together an initial briefing um, actually in response to the budget, which was in March um, 2020. So before the lockdown, where we warned that actually underfunding of the health service left the UK in a, in a, you know, a poor place to deal with COVID, but also that women were, were more likely to be poor, were more likely to be in debt, were more likely to be in insecure jobs, and therefore more vulnerable to the economic impacts of COVID. And since then, we've produced a series of reports, both by ourselves, but also in partnership with other women's organisations. So with the Fawcett Society, with sister organisations in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, and with academics, um, particularly Tracy Warren and Claire Leonette at the universities of Nottingham and Warwick, looking at the impact of COVID on working class women. So could you maybe tell us a bit about those reports? Have they been published? And what did you find in relation to the impacts on working class women? So one of the things that, that work that um, Tracy and Claire did in their research 
they were looking at things like the impact of furlough, you know, who was more likely to be furloughed, um, who was able to work from home and who wasn't, you know, there was a, a kind of assumption, I think, particularly during the early lockdowns, that everybody was working from home. And actually, there were large numbers of working class women in particular who did jobs that couldn't be done from home. So they were either key workers or they were likely to be furloughed. But we also looked at, you know, who was doing the majority of unpaid work in the home. And, you know, one of the things we found, which isn't really a surprise, was that when schools and nurseries closed, it was women who were more likely to have to reduce their hours or have to combine paid work with unpaid caring for their children and and home educating, and that this had a huge impact on their mental health, and that working class women in particular faced particular impacts on their mental health, because they were also dealing with being on an incredibly tight budget. You know, even for those who've been furloughed, so kept their jobs, if you're on low wages, and you're only earning 80% of your previous wage, that's really hard to live on. One of the things that we found was that employers of people in professional jobs were more likely to top up their wages to full pay. So even if somebody was furloughed, they would be furloughed on full pay. Whereas working class women and men were less likely to have their wages topped up. So were more likely to be hit with the 20% cut with the furlough rates. Yeah, and it's something we've spoken about previously at COVID aid is the wealth inequalities that have have kind of been highlighted in the pandemic. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that in terms of government support and how to balance or rebalance that inequality in society. Well, there's there's two different stories going on, isn't there? So overall, during the, the COVID period, levels of savings in the general population went up. But actually, there was two very different things happening. So for richer people, who were able to continue working from home, were still getting paid and were saving money on commuting costs, on going out, all the sort of discretionary spending that they were unable to to make, actually increased savings quite significantly. Poorer households who might not have been able to be working from home, might have been furloughed, might have lost their job, or if they're on a zero-hours contract, just not be given any work, actually went further into debt. So the the pre-existing inequalities where you've got some some people with savings and some people in quite severe levels of debt has got worse. And obviously that puts people in a a very vulnerable situation now with the increasing cost of living. Because obviously if you're already in debt and you're seeing your costs go up, then you've got no cushion to fall back on. You've got nothing to sort of dip into if, if money's tight. So that covers working class women, but I do want to talk about women of black and minority ethnic groups who are often underreported when it comes to the pandemic. Can you help us to understand why and in what ways these women were so significantly affected? Well, there is a really big overlap, you know, class and and um and race intersect really significantly. So we know that black women, Asian women in particular, were more likely to be hit by austerity policies. So went into the pandemic having lost more of their income and lost more of public services because of greater poverty, um, which is a result of, of structural racism. But also... There's some factors around multi-generational households um, in some ethnic minority communities, which made people particularly vulnerable to the spread of COVID, 
particularly from children at school and, and older family members, the sorts of sectors that people work in, particularly sectors where that people weren't furloughed or were more likely to be in key worker roles, um, more likely to be in, in health and social care roles, for example, um, so more likely to be hit harder than there, where you've got underlying health inequalities as a result of poverty and broader inequalities, that makes people more vulnerable to, to the, the health effects of COVID. So we know that, you know, a disproportionate number of black people in particular would like to get seriously ill from COVID. So there's, there's kind of multiple intersecting disproportionate impacts. When we did, we did some polling work with the Fawcett Society and others, and we found that this was at the beginning of the pandemic, that black mothers in particular were more likely to raise concerns about being unable to feed their families, being unable to feed their children, and more likely to be worried about getting into higher levels of debt, more likely to think that they would they would have to, to go into debt in order to, to survive the pandemic. And again, we see a disproportionate impact with, with the rising cost of living. So we know that you know, poverty rates are significantly higher among some um, ethnic minority communities. So poverty rates among white people are just under 20%. Um, the Bangladeshi community, it's over 50%. The Pakistani community, just under 50%. Black communities, around 40%. So that means that all of those communities are disproportionately impacted by the rising cost of living, because obviously the, the cost of living crisis isn't just a crisis of costs, it's a crisis of incomes. So when people have got lower incomes um, and lower levels of savings and higher levels of debt, they're more likely to be hit harder. Absolutely. I think it's kind of a multi-pronged approach because we also know that Black and ethnic minority groups were among the lower rates of vaccination, especially amongst pregnant mothers, so that they were less likely to be vaccinated whilst pregnant. And in terms of the cost of living crisis, it just seems an imbalanced situation. So what can organisations and policymakers do to make sure these voices are heard? Well, actually listen to what these women are saying. You know, sometimes people talk about hard to reach communities. They're not at all hard to reach. They're just not listened to communities. I think particularly for, for policymakers, for um, politicians and officials, you know, carrying out proper equality impact assessments, speaking to the organisations that represent those communities, speaking to the women from those communities, will highlight very quickly ways in which policies might not work for, for particular communities and, and enable people to come up with better policies. Um, there's been a real failure by government to do any sort of equality impact assessment of their, their COVID policies. And you see that in some really obvious failings. So, for example, the self-employed income support scheme, which was aiming to provide you know, support to self-employed people who were unable to work during the pandemic. But it calculated the support that was given based on average earnings over the last three years. But if you had been on maternity leave, for example, then your average earnings would be lower. Now, it would have been very, very easy to say, OK, you can discount periods of maternity leave when calculating your average earnings. That would have been a really straightforward thing to do. But they didn't do that, despite being repeatedly told. And that had you know, a particularly severe impact on self-employed women who had had children in the last couple of years. Similarly, you know, we know now when the 
increase in universal credit was first brought in in 2020, which was really a recognition that universal credit was insufficient for people to live on. Um, it didn't apply to what are called legacy benefits. So those are the benefits that existed before universal credit came in. But a lot of people are still on. So people haven't all been transferred across to universal credit. And that includes large numbers of disabled people. And disability organisations have been saying this for the last two years. You know, it's not a secret to policymakers that actually when universal credit was increased, large numbers of disabled people missed out because they were on different benefits that didn't get that £20 increase. You know, it's not like there's some sort of really complicated and difficult thing that policymakers need to do. They just need to actually listen to the organisations that, that represent particular communities and, and to people themselves, and they will find out what the problems are and how they need to deal with them. I mean, in terms of what should actually happen in policy terms... We clearly need a social security system that provides people with a livable income. As I said, the cost of living crisis is not just a crisis of costs, it's a crisis of incomes. It's brought about because of sustained cuts to the value of social security over the past 12 years. That means that it's, it's really inadequate, even without rising prices. So we need a, an increase in benefits to keep pace with inflation the restoration of the £20 uplift to all benefits, getting rid of the benefits cap and the two-child limit. Now, the two-child limit disproportionately impacts Black and Asian households um, which, who are more likely to have more than two children, ensuring things like the childcare um, element of universal credit can be paid in advance. You know, at the moment, um, if you want to start work and you're wanting to get your children into childcare, you have to pay for those costs up front. And then the money comes in later on down the line in universal credit. Well, if you've got no savings, if you're already in debt, that creates a trap that makes it impossible to start work in the first place. So there's a whole range of, of policies that the government could introduce if they wanted to deal with the rising cost of living. Ending the no recourse to public funds conditions. So there's large numbers of migrant women who are not eligible for any state support. And that during COVID, you know, initially included people who worked in the health and social care sector. So people who were working as nurses, as, as care workers, as cleaners in hospitals and care homes, who, if they lost their job, wouldn't have been entitled to claim universal credit because they're here on the condition that they have no recourse to public funds, which means that even though they're working and they're paying taxes, um, they're not allowed to claim benefits. That would be something that the government could reverse overnight, and that would make a huge difference to, to large numbers of migrant women. More examples of how these policies that are introduced miss the mark for those who really need them most. You know, job seekers, for example, the policies seem to help those who are actively looking for work. But what about those who are unable to enter the job market because of health issues or mental health as well? Do you think there have been any positive progresses that have been made for women as a result of the pandemic? You know, for example, with the increase of working from home, are more mothers now able to stay in jobs because of these changes? Um, I think for those people who have jobs that they can do from home, and it's really important to remember that large numbers of people don't have jobs that can be done from home. And particularly poorer women are less likely to have jobs that they can do from home. You know, home working has historically been much more available for kind of middle class and professional jobs. But for those who are able to work from home, I do think it, it has made a difference. 
And I think it's also made a difference for um, disabled people because you may be, you know, you may have an impairment that means that you can work a shorter day, um, but couldn't necessarily cope with with a commute to and from work. And being able to work from home and have periods of rest and work flexibly enables you to to stay in the labour market. So I think, you know, one positive thing has been, you know, a real recognition by large numbers of employers that actually there are different ways in which we can all work effectively, that home working, flexible working are all possible and that organisations don't grind to a halt when that happens. I think that doesn't work for everybody. I think, you know, being able to work from home successfully requires you to have space in which you can do home working. If you're in an overcrowded housing situation, if you're in a situation where you're living in a, a shared house with a, a large number of people um, and you're either all trying to work at the kitchen table or you're all working in, in your bedrooms where there isn't a proper space and a desk. And, you know, that can be quite oppressive and difficult. And I think what we're probably going to see is a move, you know, as we are already seeing a move to kind of more hybrid working situations. I think for some couples, there was a recognition of the impact of unpaid work. Um, particularly on fathers that maybe they hadn't realised up till then, that suddenly when schools and nurseries were closed and both parents were working from home, there was some negotiation in some couples around um, who was responsible for what, and that might lead over time to kind of greater sharing of care responsibilities. I mean, we're kind of watching to see how that pans out longer term. We do know that um, the Institute for Fiscal Studies did a big research project um, early on in the pandemic with about 5,000 um, heterosexual couples with children. And they found that women were doing more unpaid care than their male partners, um, care of children, in every situation other than where the, the mother was still working outside the home full time and the father was not working or had been furloughed, in which case childcare was shared broadly equally. So it wasn't, you know, previously people have said, oh, well, women do more unpaid care because they work shorter hours or they work closer to home. Actually, it might be that they work shorter hours and work closer to home because they're doing more unpaid care. There's a bit of a chicken and egg situation there. But when you were suddenly in a situation where both partners were working from home and the kids were around full time, you could really see how things played out. And what happened was that people tended to fall into very traditional gendered roles about um, who was responsible for looking after children. Men did more, but not to the extent that women did. But there may be, you know, there may be changes about that as people saw how that played out. The other thing that I think has been positive is greater recognition of the importance of childcare. We haven't seen a solution on actually providing childcare, you know, that's accessible and affordable for everybody. But I think particularly employers have really recognised the importance of childcare and seen what happens to their workforce when their workforce can't, ha can't access childcare, and that's that's been really positive. I wondered if you could maybe expand on that in terms of the mental health implications having these kind of traditional gender roles might have on women. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we saw in the pandemic was the mental health impacts for women of working incredibly long hours while trying to look after children who were at home. And so the mental health impact of the absence of childcare, that, you know, if you're trying to hold down a full-time job while homeschooling your kids, um, that 
you know, ends up for large numbers of people working incredibly long days, you know, starting very early in the morning with paid work, then going on to home educating, then going back to paid work again in the evening. And just the, the stress of that level of work is really, really difficult to deal with and has huge mental health impact. And I think, you know, that will be exacerbated now with the cost of living crisis, because if you're adding on top of long working hours, paid and unpaid work, to, you know, real worry about how to manage household budgets, that does have an impact um, on women's mental and, and physical health, actually. I mean, we know that, that women are the shock absorbers of poverty. So women tend to have main responsibility for the purchase and preparation of food for their families and the management of budget, particularly in poorer households. We know that where kind of household financial management is about deciding about investments and shares, it tends to be seen as a male responsibility. When it's um, about deciding whether to pay the rent or buy your kids new shoes because they've got holes in them, that's seen as, as the woman's responsibility. So it's women who are juggling those incredibly tight household budgets. And it's also women who are more likely to go without in order to make sure that their children have what they need. So to skip meals, to not have the heating on during the day. I mean, that's obviously less of an issue now, but was an issue um, earlier this year and will be an issue again later into the autumn as fuel prices are expected to rise again, that women are more likely to be at home um, during the day and more likely to, to be deciding to kind of keep the heating off until the rest of the family are home. And again, that has impacts on their physical and mental health. This might be somewhat speculative, but do you have an understanding of why this sits with the mother or the woman in the household typically? What's behind the kind of gendered norms about who's responsible for childcare? Well, um, I mean, there's a number of things. I think these are, you know, long-standing expect, gendered expectations placed on men and women that have existed for, for generations and they're shifting, but they're not shifting fast enough. I think they're reinforced by things like leave policy. So actually, if you look at um, couples before they become parents, there's a general desire to share care more equally than their parents shared care. But what happens is women are entitled to a year's maternity leave. Um, men are entitled to two weeks paternity leave I mean, in heterosexual couples. And so that establishes the mother as the primary care of the child from very early on. And what that means is then that after a year's leave, the decision is very much about should the mother return to work? Should she return full time or part time? The father is long back to work and back to his normal routine. So there's less of a discussion about what impact it would have on his work. Should he reduce his working hours and so on? And so then you start getting those, those differences embedded. Um, and then so after the first child, a, a woman might return to work part time. She has a second child. Um, the cost of childcare might well be more than her salary. And so in the short term, it might make economic sense for her to, to stop paid, to leave paid work. You know, longer term, it means that she's out of the labour market and it's harder to get back. So it's much better to stay in the labour market, but it, it, it does make short term sense. And so that kind of reinforces the idea that looking after children is the mother's responsibility. 
Um, but you see it in schools. I mean, you know, you talk to most mothers about how schools communicate with them and their partner. It tends to be the mother that gets called if a child is ill and needs collecting from school. And there's often an assumption that, that mothers are available to do things during the working day at the school. Um, and the sort of inference that you're not a good mother if you're not around um, in order to do that. So there's a whole series of things that kind of reinforce each other. And then, of course, because there is the pay gap, um, it often makes more economic sense for the woman to reduce her working hours than the man because it's, it's less of a loss to the household budget. But in turn, one of the reasons for the pay gap is because a lot of the sectors that women work in, where they mirror the work that women do for nothing in the home, so work that involves cleaning, catering work, care work, the skills involved in all of those jobs are devalued because they're seen as something that women do for nothing all the time. So therefore, how can they be that difficult? Um, and therefore, they attract lower levels of pay. It really hits home when you put it like that. You know, it's household work that they do for free. I wonder if um, maybe you could help us to understand the prospects of women today moving towards COVID recovery. We've already mentioned the cost of living crisis. Maybe we could touch upon the job market. Yeah, so there's interesting things going on in the job market at the moment. So unemployment at the moment is very low. But actually, levels of employment haven't gone up that much. So what we're seeing is an increase in, first of all, we're seeing people have left the UK, I mean, particularly uh, EU citizens who were working in the UK have left in quite significant numbers, um, and that's had an impact. But secondly, we've seen an impact in um, people who what are, are described as um, economically inactive by statisticians. I mean, obviously, they're not economically inactive. They're looking after other people, for example. That's not inactivity. But in terms of the terms that the Office for National Statistics use, they're economically inactive. Um, and that's a combination of people who, who've got care responsibilities, but actually it seems to be particularly high among older people. So people coming up to retirement age, and it's often people um, leaving the workplace early because of ill health. And I think also the generation of women who had expected to be able to retire um, at 60, suddenly in a position where they can't retire at 60, but are not not well enough to stay in the labour market, so have left or have lost their jobs and have found it hard to get back in, but aren't signing on as unemployed or claiming benefits, maybe because they have a working partner, um, they wouldn't be entitled to benefits or they think they wouldn't be entitled to benefits, so they don't register as unemployed, which means they're not recorded on the unemployment statistics. Um, they're recorded as economically inactive. So we have quite a, a tight labour market um, with you know, a very small number of job seekers compared to vacancies. But we don't know what the impact of the cost of living crisis is going to be on the overall economy. So it looks like retail sales are down. Obviously, when money's tight, people cut back on discretionary spending, they spend less money on the high street, they spend less money on other areas that could have a knock on impact on the wider economy. And those sectors which have just seen a massive explosion as people have sort of come out of COVID and started spending money again, if people start thinking, actually, do you know what, we can't afford to do this, we're worried about bills, those sectors might contract again. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're in, we're in quite uncertain times, I think, for women at the moment. So are you working on any policy recommendations for how we can address these issues? And how likely is it that we'll be able to achieve 
an improved situation for the groups most impacted by cost of living and COVID recovery? So one of the things that we've been really pushing for is significant investment in public services. I mean, we were we were calling for a care-led recovery from COVID um, during the COVID pandemic. And we were saying, you know, the government's focus on kind of build, 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 and, and the way that you restart the economy is, is through investment in physical infrastructure, things, you know, roads, rail, and so on, is misdirected. That actually what we need is investment in social infrastructure and particularly care services to support people in who are providing unpaid care, make sure that people with care needs have those needs met. Um, you know, one of the big factors in the cost of living crisis for families with young children is the cost of childcare. You know, we talk a lot about the cost of food and fuel, but actually childcare is a, is a huge factor in the cost of living crisis. If we had free universal childcare, that would significantly reduce um, child poverty, would enable um, more parents to get into the labour market and to work longer hours. And over time, would largely pay for itself with reduced social security and um, increased taxes. We've we've done work modelling that. But we also need to to think about the cost of living crisis in terms of a a kind of another looming, really urgent crisis, which is, is the climate emergency. And we actually need to be thinking about how do we reduce people's energy costs? We need major investment in retrofitting homes which will enable people to use less energy, which will help them both because it reduces their energy costs, but also help us tackle climate change. We need much more investment in public transport, particularly in rural areas, which would reduce the transport and fuel costs that a lot of people are facing. You know, for a lot of people, increasing fuel costs is is a major barrier to being able to work because they live in areas where there isn't, there isn't adequate public transport. We need significant in investment in social housing you know it's it's no accident that people who look at poverty calculate poverty both before and after housing costs and that rates of poverty after housing costs are a lot higher cost of housing to to rent and buy have gone up really significantly over the past you know 10 15 20 years and then continued to go up and actually you know what we need to recognize is that the private rented sector it has failed if, if what we're thinking about is how we provide adequate, safe, affordable homes for people. Short-term private rents might be okay when you're kind of young and in your early 20s and relatively mobile, but once you have a family, they don't work. Um, you need greater security, and high rental costs make it really, really hard for people to afford to live in areas where work might be available. Social housing would make a huge difference, you know, in, in significantly increased social housing built to high environmental standards would both contribute to tackling the cost of living, create more jobs, um, help reboost the economy and um, be better for the environment. So what has the reaction been to your calls for this kind of support? I mean, we've had, you know, we've had a lot of positive interest, I think, particularly from backbench MPs and, you know, organisations, you know, MPs working on the Green New Deal and so on. And there's certainly a lot of interest in our calls for free universal childcare from MPs of all parties. From the government, there's been less engagement. And I think, you know, one of the really concerning things it, at the last, at the spring statement, 
the Chancellor was saying, you know, his priority is to cut taxes. This is the wrong priority. I mean, the, the government's priority right now should be actually addressing the cost of living crisis and addressing the, the climate crisis uh, in a way that helps people, you know, rebuild after COVID in a way that's it's equitable rather than kind of short term tax cuts, which benefit the better off. I could sit and talk about this all day. It's really interesting to hear your insights. For our listeners at home, where can they find out more information about the Women's Budget Group? And what kind of things have you got lined up for the year ahead? So um, you can find all, all our materials, reports, information, how to kind of sign up to our newsletter, find out what we're doing at our website, which is at wbg.org.uk. We're going to be doing more work on the cost of living um, and looking at the impact of the cost of living on different groups of people and working out how that's affecting different people. We have a project with the Women's Environmental Network, which is on a feminist Green New Deal. So we're looking at um, how we both tackle the climate emergency and promote gender equality. Uh, we've got a big project on local data so helping grassroots women's organisations, local campaigners find local data so they can research what's going on locally in order to support local campaigning and advocacy um, and building their capacity to, to have an impact there. We've got um, ongoing work on care. Um, so we've produced a report with the New Economics Foundation on what's needed for social care. Um, again, free universal care service. And we're doing work with other organisations around childcare um, and looking at how we can do some, some big joint campaigning on childcare. I really enjoyed this conversation with Marianne and I thank her for her time joining us on COVID Matters. What really stood out to me in our conversation is how closely the coronavirus pandemic intersects with things like the current cost of living crisis and the climate emergency. During this time of severe economic and societal change, with people working from home more often and spending less, or perhaps on lower incomes, this all has a knock-on effect, resulting in higher tax payments and energy prices rising all tied into our plans for recovery. I also value the work of the Women's Budget Group in ensuring that all women's voices are heard, no matter their background. Marianne spoke today about refugee women and disabled women who missed out on vital government support due to a lack of policies that would support them. The key, it's clear, is to listen to these communities in order to effectively address their concerns. Please take a look at our show notes for links to any of the resources mentioned on today's episode. You'll also find there our links to our website and social media. We are at COVIDAID Charity. As always, please like and subscribe to COVID Matters for more conversations with experts and let us know what you thought of this episode. Thanks to all for listening and until next time, please take care.